Welcome to Break Bias. I'm your host, Brad Kramer. It's bonus episode number four in part two with TSN's Tim Haraney. Last time we talked all things Canadian Grand Prix ahead of F1's return to Montreal, and we got so carried away with the F1 season we didn't even have time to get into Tim's racing career. So that's what this episode's all about. So enjoy Tim's story from a young racer in Ontario to a professional overseas to the focal point of TSN's racing coverage. All right, I'm here again with who I can now say is officially a friend of the podcast, <laughs> TSN's Formula One and IndyCar racing analyst, host of the TSN Racing Pod and former racing driver, Tim Haraney. How's the summer been treating you, Tim? Yeah, not too bad, uh, Brad. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Uh, yeah, summer's been good, you know, uh, just on a bit of a break here over the past uh, week and a bit. So it's been it's been kind of nice because it was uh, we were pretty full go there for uh for quite a while coming out of Miami it was uh things something happening working on something every single day since uh Miami Grand Prix so yeah it's been nice to get a, a bit of a break uh hopefully this week coming up here will be a bit more of a break because last week wasn't that much of a break anyway so <laughs> always yeah, got something sh- going on you know Brad <laughs> yeah and I'm sure you had a lot going on that uh week of the Canadian Grand Prix that's of course when we oh, yeah. when we talked last um, and we talked a lot about the F1 season and the Canadian Grand Prix. We never even got into your career, which I really wanted to ask you about. Um, oh, so sure. let's, yeah, let's get right into that. Um, and maybe at, at the end, if we have time, we can maybe still talk a little F1. But sure. Uh, <laughs> so this is a question I really looked forward to asking you last time, because growing up, I, I played hockey and baseball and motorsport was never even really made aware to me until at my first job, my boss told me that his son raced carts. And I was like, you know what? That'd be such a cool thing to do in like as a child. And it never even occurred to me. So I just wanted to ask you, like, how did that all start for you? Did it run in the family? Uh, did you just love cars as a kid? What's the story? Yeah, uh, it, it, I guess you would say it kind of ran in our family, but like no one ever pushed it on you. Uh, my dad, he used to do um, racing at Jim Russell Racing School up in uh, Mont-Tremblant and he always had a thing for fast cars and Formula One and IndyCar and my grandfather uh, he actually he would race motorbikes over in Scotland that's where he's from and my other grandfather he's from Lebanon Uh, so there wasn't too much uh, racing coming from (laughs) my dad's side in terms of uh, Lebanon but uh, (laughs) Yeah, he was uh, when they got to Canada, you know, he got he got into racing quite a bit and um, he worked at like a gas station, like pumping gas and like washing people's windshields. And he'd work all these random different jobs so he could pay for uh, his racing, so to speak. So it was I guess I kind of got it from my dad for sure. And then I got a little bit of it from my grandfather as well on my mom's side and yeah, it was just, uh, something I always loved. Like we, I started out with dirt bikes. So I was, I was dirt biking a lot when I was, when I was a kid and that's, that's what I do. Um, my uncle and I, we would, um, build a dirt bike and then we would go and race it around and motocross and all that kind of fun stuff. And then that kind of transferred into, 
uh, go-karts because I started getting into formula one and I was probably around eight or nine years old at that time. And yeah, started getting into formula one and IndyCar, And I just kind of wanted to do that. I was just like, I want to do that. That's what I want to do. And so that's how essentially we got into go-karting. We got a go-kart and, uh, we, we built it up and we crewed it ourselves. Uh, we trailered it everywhere ourselves. Like we didn't have, a because now they got like teams and stuff like that. And we, we didn't have anything like that. We, we had to do everything on our own. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was a ton of fun, man. I, I, I loved it. And that's where you learn everything too, right? That's where you learn like your, uh, race craft, uh, you learn, you know, racing lines, uh, things of that nature. Yeah. And you said you got into a uh, formula one at that age. Who is your mm. role model? Who is your, who is your guy in formula one at the time? Yeah. It had to be Ayrton Senna. I, I, uh, I always thought he was, he was the best, uh, just simply because of like the different types of cars he was able to make go fast. That probably shouldn't be fast, especially the, you know, the Williams in the 94 season like that, that car was just a, it wasn't very good, but he managed to somehow make it really quick competing against cars that had a little bit more technology in them as well. So yeah, I always, I always thought Ayrton Senna was the best. Some of the things that I, uh, saw him do on television. I would always be like, how did he even do that? Like, how was that possible? I think it was in the wet at Snetterton trying to think like where he came from, if it was P4 or P6, but like by the end of the lap, it was like pouring rain. Uh, he was like P1 and it was incredible. Uh, what he had done. I believe he was on a set of slick tires too. If I, if memory serves me right. Um, and I just thought, because I was starting to get like, really into racing at that point and like kind of understood what it was like feeling like from a go-kart perspective. And then I was kind of like, how was he able to do that? Like I was incredible. And then as I got further into the formulas, like it was, um, yeah, I just, I just, uh, I would go back and watch those videos and I'd just be like, oh, man, that guy's amazing. <laughs> yeah. He, yeah. He certainly was. And you mentioned 94, obviously a bit of a dark year. Um, mm. but uh, I think you mentioned eight or nine years old is when you started karting. Yeah. Is, when are kids usually starting nowadays? Yeah, it, usually some of them now, like now they're starting even younger. Like now, like some of them are like four or five years old when they're starting to kart now. And I think that's same the same with like a lot of sports. It kind of seems like athletes now who are making it in a different type of sport or whatever, they start really, really young. And that's the main focus, right? They don't usually shift too much out of that realm of sport where it's kind of like the parent is probably like hey like this is what you're gonna do and if this is what you want to do then this is what we have to do every day like we can't go and do soccer we can't go do whatever whatever the sport is you're gonna go get into right uh because i think that really detracts quite a bit from um what the objective is and what the goal is and uh where you see yourself going and i think like that's uh I think like if you want to be a great athlete in your sport, you have to commit the time to it, right? Like if that's what it takes, it's just, what's that 10,000 hours sort of, sort of deal, but it's true. You, you have to commit so much time to it. It's incredible. Yeah. And that's the one thing when I, I heard about my boss son racing carts, like I never understood the commitment that it really took to motorsport cool. until, yeah, until I started following the sport and it's only yeah. been two years. I like to think that I've learned a lot, but I'm still very green in terms of like what path you have to take to become, if you're, if you're taking it seriously and you want to become a professional racer. So kind of what is that path for a Canadian? 
Um, it's different. It's difficult, especially for uh, Canadians. You know, we don't have a lot of funding in the grassroots uh, level and not a lot of European teams or sponsors will come over to Canada to check out, you know, talent over here, uh, even in the States as well. I mean, like there's a ton of talent in both uh, the United States and in Canada and it doesn't really get recognized or flushed out because we just don't have the support. We don't have the support really too much from corporate Canada. I mean, hopefully that changes one day, but at the moment that's kind of like where things are. And uh, there's a lot of good young uh, carters who are out there who have like a lot of prospects, but have no way of moving out of carts and into cars or out of carts and into formula racing or NASCAR or stock. Yeah. Stock cars, you know, any of that kind of stuff. We just no, we have no way of getting there. There's no platform. So Usually it takes a sponsor getting involved with a driver um, or it could, you know, you come from a wealthy background and that kind of helps you pave that way. You, you have talent, so your family has money and they just kind of help you along with that. Uh, that's, you know, a lot of the drivers I race against. That's usually what we were up against. Um, but at the end of the day, I mean, yeah, I think to have more Canadian success, we just need more help from like corporate Canada. I mean, if you look at, oh boy, if we go back to the days of like the players, the players era, I mean, they were covering everything, right? They were taking care of the driver. They were hand selecting some of our top talent uh, within the country. Uh, if you were able to get into that program, that is, that was huge. Um and so, yeah, that's that 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 was big. That was big back in the day. And so now, kind of, we need something something similar set up to to have really good Canadian success again, right? Because it's like, you know, we just don't we just don't have that right now. So I think that would be really important for sure. Yeah, and I feel like it, it probably varies a little bit for like the type of motorsport. Um, but focusing on open wheel racing, it seems like moving to Europe is like almost a necessity if you want to make it professionally. Is that accurate? Yeah, 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 definitely. I mean, you kind of like you have to, you, you kind of do have to go to Europe. I mean, the racing is a little different. Uh, it's very competitive, super aggressive, and you're racing against like the best in the world at that point when you get to Europe. And I, I would say like when I left Formula Ford and started racing in Formula Renault, the amount of aggression uh, and just the amount you had to kind of like raise your game is was like off the charts. I, well, I didn't know what I was getting into when I first uh, got into my first practice session in Formula Renault. And I was just like, whoa, like this is like, yeah, I got to kind of like start taking, <laughs> moving things to another level here because these guys are really good, like really, yeah. really good. And so, yeah, going to Europe is is very important. For sure. I, I, I want to bring it back to you now. Um, where were you able to travel in your career? I know you mentioned Formula Renault going over to Europe, probably went to a, a lot of amazing places. Yeah, all over, man, all over. Yeah. Honestly, I if I sat here and listed everything off, it would probably take up the rest of our time. Okay, well then, how about I uh, narrow it down a little bit? How about some of your favorite tracks that uh, you raced in in Europe? Uh, uh, Spa was cool. Uh, let's see, uh, Silverstone was cool. Um, Brands Hatch. Uh, the, I think that the biggest one for me had to be Monza. That was the best. That was that was cool because that one was like. Um, 
you were you kind of knew like you were going into history as soon as you like entered the track and as soon as you were in the pits you're just like wow i'm like actually walking down the pit lane to get into to get into my race car here at bonza i'm like this is absolutely incredible and the sights and and like another part of monza is they have the old uh banking that they used to i was going to ask about that i was going to say did you go check out the old banking yeah yeah i did and it was cool the day i went and looked at it it was like pouring rain and it was kind of dark but so anyway so i went out to so i went out to check it out and got there and i was like i was the only one there and i was like i can't believe that these guys raced on this like that is insane it was just insane even the the era i was racing and people will go back and be like you were racing in that that's crazy i was like thinking like they were (laughs) like they were crazy the things that they were doing because i mean the track man the banking on it if you were to sprint you couldn't get to the top i couldn't get to the top like it's it's very hard um but yeah anyway so i stood there and i just I hung out for a bit right and you just got that feeling that you were like in the presence of like this is like where greatness sort of happened yeah. and if you look to the right like the track curved all the way around into the woods and if you look to the left same sort of thing curved around all the way into the woods and you were just kind of like wow this goes forever and it's like kind of felt like there was a, a ghost of a race car that was going to come by you or something weird like that it was just a really weird feeling but it was so cool because uh just all of the history that that you were surrounded by uh so when it comes down to like all of the racetracks i would say um that one for sure the canadian grand prix track was really cool raced on on that a ton as well uh and then there's some really cool tracks in the united states that are just like they're still really like (laughs) like driver's tracks where it's like you make a mistake and you're really going to get punished for it. Like they still have those types of tracks in the United States, which is, which is awesome. Cause they were, they have some tough tracks, but yeah, Monza, I think for me was, was like the, the number one. So was that, um, mostly formula Renault or did you do like some sports cars over in Europe as well? That was, yeah, that was sports cars. Oh, okay. Monza. Well, sports cars. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sports okay. cars. Um, so that was a, FIA uh GT championship and man we had we had a rough weekend when we raced there but it was uh it was raining for a lot of it from what I recall and man just the uh the the curbing like it would it would have been because the curbing is different there than it is at some other places because they the curbing kind of invites you to kind of take some of it and then you take a little bit too much and you hit the sausage curbs. And so you really have to be accurate with how you attack the the chicanes. It's really, really important to pay attention to that um, because they can like they can bite you big time. Like we saw with Verstappen and Hamilton uh, yeah, yeah. last season. Right. I mean, it's like that's that's a cause of the sausage curve. He hits that and that gives him a bit of air. And that's how he goes on top of Lewis. But um, those those things were a little I don't want to say dangerous, but you had to watch out for them for sure. And uh, that 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 um that was tough because you couldn't just throw the car over them like even like a gt car wouldn't even go over them properly so you had to be careful with that but uh yeah that was gt racing at monza (laughs) yeah so you kind of get into my next question a little bit you've raced formula cars sports cars also competed in 24 hours at daytona uh which which cars were your favorite to drive what suited your driving style the best uh the atlantic car the champ car atlantic car did yeah so that is that was probably the greatest car i ever raced 
It was had a ton of downforce on it. Uh, and like, I'm a naturally a smooth driver. Um, I can be aggressive when I need to be, but for the most part, I kind of want to work with the car. I don't ever really want to work against it or I don't want to, I was always taught never really to end. You want to engineer the car, but you kind of want to engineer it so you can kind of get it to where, where both you and the car are kind of working in tandem with each other. And so sometimes that means compromise and that means, you know, you're going to go through a corner and you're going to be like, I don't know, this is going to work out, you know, <laughs> and you're kind of like really delicate with the wheel when you're going through. Uh, and by delicate, I mean, you know, like these things didn't have power steering and there's a ton of downforce on them, but as delicate as you kind of could be, because you're kind of like really wringing this thing's neck. Yeah. Um, and that car, you, you, it favored smoothness. And if you overdrove or if you were way too aggressive with the front end, like it would really bite you. So you had to be, you had to be careful with that. Uh, same with like a brake bias adjustment. You had to make sure that like you had your brake bias in a certain point for a certain type of a corner where it's kind of like, you know, brake bias now and formula cars are, you know, the formula one cars in particular are now pre-programmed. So you don't really need to worry too much about it. Like back then you were like cranking brake bias and the thing as you were going down the straightaway. So you had one hand off the wheel and you were like cranking the brake bias into it and then th throw your hand back on the steering wheel and your other hands going in for a downshift. So you're always really busy in the cockpit of those cars, but yeah, the, the smoother you could be with that car, the faster you were going to go. And um, yeah, it was a wild ride. That car was uh, th those cars were incredible to drive. Incredible. Well, I absolutely love that you mentioned brake bias on the show. Cause of course that is the name <laughs> of the show. We don't get to talk about it a whole lot. So that that's perfect. <laughs> um, so I, I kind of wanted to ask what separates just a professional racing driver from the guys who we see on the F1 grid. Uh, so you mean like what separates like, uh, like an IndyCar driver from an F1 driver or how do you mean it? Well, I think some of the IndyCar drivers, you could argue, I mean, it's a different sport. So you could argue they're just as talented as F1. 100%. Just maybe. Yeah. So just, I guess someone who didn't make it professionally or up to the highest level, I should say, not professional sure. to the highest level. What, what kind of separates, what holds you back from being able to make it to F1? Uh, I don't know. It's uh, it's different for everyone. So you can't necessarily pin it onto one thing. I can speak from my experiences. We just didn't have the money. We didn't have the finances to, to, to move up into a category like formula 3000 at the time. Um, and then GP two started to come on board. Um, and we just didn't have, we didn't have those resources to, to get there. The formula 3000 cars were awesome too. And, um, yeah, sort of the GP two cars back in the day, those cars were really cool. Uh, but yeah, we just never had those finances. And also there was never a real like uh, ladder system. Like in the time that I was racing, it was kind of like there were so many different types of racing series, so many different types of open wheel racing series. And you always kind of knew that you needed to be in the best to stand out. But you also knew that you needed the budget to come along with it. And you also needed to find out which series that was because it was always changing. Like nothing was ever the same. Like um some drivers were going to come into formula renault and then they were going to leave formula renault and they were going to go to the formula renault 3.5 series or formula renault v8 series and it's like well hold on a second here like where where's jonathan hall going like that guy was really good like why is he going over here when there's no real talent over there and it's kind of like you needed to find out where the best were going and uh follow them because 
you wanted to beat them and you wanted to stand out. Um, and so that was really difficult to navigate for a young driver uh, like myself back then. Now it's way different because we've got F4. Like you kind of know what the, the pecking order sort of is now, which is great. And it makes it so much easier. And like, it's like if you're able to win in those championships, so like F4, F3, F2, like you're racing against the best like mm-hmm. the best if you're racing in like some sort of series like i've never even heard of or like i don't want to like sit here and slam racing series but if you're racing in a racing series that doesn't have like the top line talent in it then it's like it's going to be really tough to stand out and it's going to be really tough because if you win that championship a team owner in f2 or a team owner even in formula one is going to look at that and be like well who's in that championship right like we i don't even know who's in there like we don't know any of those drivers where it's like we know the drivers that are in f3 we know the drivers that are in f2 we know the drivers that are in f4 and for formula one i think that that was a smart move of just trying to put everything into one ladder system like indycar does with the road to indy their scholarship program. I wish that was around when I was racing as well, because it wasn't, we never had like a road to champ car. We never had any of those things. It was, it just didn't have everything. Now you have USF 2000, you have, you know, uh, what is it? Pro formula. It used to be formula Mazda. I don't know. I can't remember what they call it now. And then you moved up into Indy lights and then you jumped into IndyCar, car. And that's like a, that's a road of progression. And you got uh, championship money from that. You know, and when I was racing, we didn't have any of that stuff, none of it. So you kind of had to really search for where was the top talent going. And then outside of that, it's kind of like you only had a small window to kind of make something with Formula One work and you needed a really solid budget. And we never had that. So once we kind of got out of Formula Renault, we were just kind of like, okay, well, what's the next sort of best option for us that we could make a career out of this? Not necessarily get to formula one it's hey like we need to make a career like we need to make money so where do we go and the next step was figuring our way out to get into champ car and that seemed to work well for us because it matched our budget uh the talent was was there and um yeah that that was important uh that was important for for me and for everybody else because it's kind of like you know you, you had mentioned um IndyCar there and and the talent that's in there. I mean, the talent that's in IndyCar is just as good as the talents in Formula One. Like there's some incredible drivers um, who are racing in IndyCar who wouldn't have any problems like in Formula One at all and can go toe to toe with any of those other guys. And you go to like WAC, same thing there. The the top talent in WAC is similar to, to that in Formula One. Same thing with Formula E. Those drivers are just as good. So it's like, if you're a driver, like the goal is to, if you, if you know that you don't have that sort of a budget or you don't have the helping hand, or you, you weren't able to get signed on with a team or any of that sort of stuff, it's like, okay, where do I go to make a living? And that's, that's always the goal really as a racing driver. I mean, you look at, um, we look at Parker Thompson, like Canadian, uh, incredible in a formula car, like so fast. He, he was incredible in USF 2000. He was incredible in Pro Mazda. He he was really great when he got a when he got a taste of the Indy Lights car. Never really got to get the dollars and cents behind him to put him into a full time ride in Indy Lights car. But he just as talented, like he was just he was super talented. Now he's kicking an ass over in in Porsche uh, uh, 
I think he's in Porsche Super Cup or something like that right now. And he's doing a great job. And he could eventually move on to like WEC and like start racing there and getting paid to do that. Right. Like, and that's, that's the goal, right. Is you got to get, you got to turn this into a job and that's the hard part. Yeah. And it does, it, it does seem like they've made steps, but it is still a real issue with motorsports, you know, just needing the funds to make it. But do you, I guess, how should I phrase this? Um, do you think like the the best will kind of always rise to the top no matter what? Because it kind of makes you think like how many talented drivers weren't able to make that next step because they just didn't have it in their budget. Yeah, sometimes, sometimes they don't. Sometimes that's it. Like they're in the grandstands. Like that's why like we hear the phrase sometimes like the best drivers are sometimes in the grandstands. You know, that's that's sometimes the way it goes with uh, motorsports. It's just, it, there's not enough seats. There's not enough money to go around for everybody. I mean, it's not like... You know, we look at other big sporting leagues like NFL, NFL in particular, right? Number of different roster spots, right? You can, if you have some talent, you can potentially get there. You can make some money uh, and you can play your sport that you love. And the thing with racing is, it's like, there's not enough seats to go around for everybody. And that's including all of racing series. And there's not a lot of drivers out there who are getting paid to actually do it. And by the time you get to a certain age, it's kind of like, Hey, like i got to be making money at this or else like I need to go find like another job or do something else because it's like, you know, you go around and you're looking for sponsorship and you have to figure out even, and this is like for, was for myself. It's like you, you, we had to find sponsors, uh, but we had to find out, okay, well, like what's the percentage of our sponsorship money that, you know, I can take so I can make a bit of a living out of it and get paid to do it. And that's hard. You got to like calculate all that stuff down and it's like, okay, well, if I don't take, you know, uh, whatever, 2%, uh, then I can take 1% and I can take that other 1% and I can put that into our travel budget. So it's stuff like that, right? Like you just, you got to make dollars and cents work at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, and I actually want to move on to, uh, your post career or post racing career, I should say, because we're, we are running out of time. Yeah. Oh, good. Um, <laughs> uh, so I just want to ask, how did the transition out of racing go down? Did, did you know what you wanted to do after racing? Uh, I didn't No, I, and I didn't really want to get out of racing to begin with. So <laughs> I feel like uh, that's usually how it goes. Yeah. It? We had a, we had a sponsor sell their company and then the recession hit and that pretty much, uh, that was pretty much it. Uh, for me because it was really hard to find sponsors um, after after the recession and where what happened to racing after the recession as well took a huge huge hit too especially in North America so I delivered pizza for a while and I worked for some car companies and uh, did some car tours uh, for some car companies and then uh, I was speaking with uh, a friend of mine who used to work over at TSN and they were like, Hey, we don't have anyone handling racing. You should, you should come over and do that. And I was like, well, I don't really know anything about, you know, like what you guys do and journalism and reporting and all that stuff. He's like, Oh, we'll teach you. Come on over. <laughs> uh, so actually I ended up going and uh, I, I did like a, uh, I did like this. I want to call it a, a crash course in journalism, but it kind of teaches t- taught you everything. And it was actually really, really great. And I learned so much and I was able to get an intern job uh, working in an archives department at the score. 
And uh, from there, I, my my buddy was like, hey, why don't you, you come on over here now? You kind of seem to like know enough that you can kind of make this work. I was like, okay. So I, I went over and I saw that they had Formula One and I was like, hey, you know, we should probably do something with this. It's a really great sport and blah, blah, blah. And so then I had to kind of get the ball moving on that being like, hey, you know, like I used to be a race car driver and no one ever believed me because of where I was working and all this other stuff. I'm just like, well, it's just the way my life went. That's just, it's just how it went. Right. And I just, you know, put, put the work in and I worked as a story editor for a bit and learned how to produce. I learned how to voice. I learned how to write for television. I learned how to make a highlight pack. I learned uh, what the anchors need for, for all of that stuff. And I, you know, I put my time in and, worked till like did the night shift stuff worked till three in the morning worked in a a bunch of olympics worked a couple of olympics that was awesome and then when i looked at formula one i was just like in canada i'm like you know we got a huge race here you know and like this actually gets a lot of numbers i'm like a lot of people watch this i'm like hey we should think about doing something like that so i put a pitch package together and i took it to them and they liked what i had shown them and they're like okay let's experiment and so they let me go and yeah, TSN, let me take the ball and run with it, right? I, I got to do a whole bunch of stuff. I got to try and produce a bunch of stuff. Um, you know, it was some of the things I did, I did on my own time. Uh, some things I did, I got paid for. Some things I, I didn't. And it's just the way it, it is, right? And uh, eventually just chipping away at it, We're working, working your way up. And I still had all my contacts in racing. And a lot of them started like migrating over into Formula One. And I thought... Oh, well, why don't I just like start leaning on these folks for some information? And then Twitter kind of was there too. And I was like, well, I can see like, uh, I started to learn like who the talent was on at ESPN and you know what I mean? And start watching what they're doing, like uh, Adrian Wojnarowski or whatever. I follow him a lot and I'm just, cause I'm a huge NBA fan, but I'm just like, Oh, that's interesting. I see what he did there with that. Or I see how he made that work or, okay, I get that. And I'm like, I understand. And then I started to kind of like put the pieces together myself where it was like, oh, well, so-and-so just told me uh, this about this driver and this is going to happen. I'm like, oh, okay, well, I guess I can tweet that, but I'm like, okay, well, how do I, how do I word it? So I don't get anyone in trouble, but it's, most likely going to happen anyways. And sure enough, all of these things started happening. And then I, the ball started rolling even more and, and yeah. And then, um, got the opportunity to go some, to some races, got the opportunity to go to some Grand Prix, um, which was, uh, awesome. It was so, so great to get back into a paddock again. And like, you know, but this was a different side, right? This was like the reporting side. And so I had to, I had to manage relationships. I, you know, had to, if I knew something was going on, then I had to figure out, okay, what's the proper uh, way of going about getting the information that I need, right? Type of deal. And because you don't want to burn bridges, you don't want to step on people's toes. And, you know, you want to try and keep your nose clean as best as possible, but you want to do a good job too at the end of the day. And you want to make sure you're telling the story fairly and, I learned and have still to this day been, been learning, right. I just, I kind of feel like I, I still learn every time I'm doing something and, and yeah, I love that part. I I really do. I like it a lot um, because I just feel like I keep getting better, you know, better as a, 
I guess, you know, whatever you want to call me, if I'm a reporter, I'm an insider, whatever the heck I am. Like, I just, I, I just love just learning different things about the job in, in general and seeing where I can kind of take it. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's been a fun ride, man. <laughs> it's, yeah, been I, it's been a lot of work, right? I mean, like, you know, too, Brad, like, you know, you're, you're, you're starting off as well. And it's, it's, uh, it can be a tough industry to break into and it takes a lot of work, a lot of your own free time and a lot of like weekends and a lot of, you know, weird hours and, and all that kind of stuff. Right. But I guess if you, you want it bad enough, you'll do, do what you got to do. Yeah, for sure. And I've, I've warned my girlfriend. I was like, I'm going to be spending a lot of hours on this. <laughs> I, I got to give it my all if, I, if I'm doing it right. So yeah, for sure. And it, I think that's super important um, because like, if it's your passion or you want to do it, uh, then it's important to you. And I think that's one of the things that like my parents always taught me is if you love doing something, then you should do everything you can to try and make that your, your job, your career. Cause you don't want to do something where you're not happy because it's, you're just going to not be happy all over the place. So it's, you always want to try and strive for what you want to do. But a lot of the times it takes a lot of work, takes a lot of sacrifice, takes a lot of not really getting paid. Sometimes it takes, uh, it, it takes so much elbow grease to kind of like just to get in there and like who, you know, and networking and yeah, all of that stuff is so, so important. And yeah, being a good person is on top of that as well is, is very important. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure you can relate to this growing up, you probably consumed a lot of sports. Um, but it's funny when you're on the kind of the other side, uh, the journalism side, if, if you will, um, the things that you pick up on, like you were mentioning with Woj is like, oh, like you, you notice things that they do, yeah. pe- things that people say in an interview before you just kind of see it as a conversation. Oh, they're asking questions. But yeah. once you're like in it, you pick up on like, oh, okay. I see how they like did that little segue or yeah. something like that. Right. Yeah. T- totally. Um, kind of see like who also has relationships with the, with the individual and like, yeah. who sort of doesn't and then even if they they don't the really the really great ones are always great at making conversation and making the individual who's being interviewed making them comfortable i think that paying attention to what the other person may want to do or paying attention to what they need or paying attention to what's going to make them feel more comfortable being around you um is important because that uh it show it, it leads to a good interview uh, but at the same time, like you, you, you get a, you get good stuff. You just, you just do. Yeah. And when you're interviewing someone, whether it be a team principal or a driver at first, did it kind of just feel like you knew these people and it was a conversation or was it stressful for you? Yeah. hundred percent. You're, you're right on that one. It just felt like, like I knew them, like for some of them, I did know them. Right. So it yeah, just made yeah, things even exactly. easier. But then that's when I was just like, you know what, this isn't like, you know, this isn't sort of life and death sort of a situation. We're talking sports and we're talking about cars. I'm like, how awesome is that? Let's just do that. And that's it. You know, we're, we're here to talk about cars. We're going to talk about some racing. There's some stuff going off the track uh, that you got going on as well. Let's talk about that a tiny bit. But yeah, always trying to keep that focus of this is what we're talking about. But, but then sometimes you get that feeling that this person doesn't necessarily feel too comfortable around you so you got to like make them feel comfortable right you got to get them into the the interview you know like Valtteri Bottas was a perfect example a long time ago and then I knew that he was a huge cyclist and then for me it was just let's start talking about biking first because that's what he wants to talk about and he did and eventually we got into some racing stuff and we got some good stuff out of him uh so that is important yeah. Cycling and coffee. I know two things that yes. he absolutely loves. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, we're out of time, Tim. So I just want to, I want to thank you for coming on again. And, uh, it was a great conversation. I wish we had more time. I feel like I could talk to you for hours. 
Oh, all good. Thanks again for having me, Brad. Really appreciate it. And that will do it for part two of the chat with Tim Haraney. Again, I really hope you guys enjoyed that as much as I did. Of course, we didn't get to talk about any F1, but I'm working hard to find a new guest to come on the podcast and discuss a bit of the 2022 F1 season. Next week, we are back on schedule previewing the Belgian Grand Prix. I will actually be away in Nashville while that episode comes out. So I'll have to record that one a bit in advance. Hope to God we don't miss another huge story like the Oscar Piastri fiasco. Anyways, thanks for listening and... Goodbye.